0: support for the game podcast is brought to you by starcitygames.com the world's largest independent retailer for magic the gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web if you would like to support the game podcast feel free to check out our patreon page at patreon.com slash the g a m podcast Hey everyone, welcome to the 72nd episode of The Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, and here with me is Brian Gottlieb, a.k.a. Teferi's Imp. Yeah,
1: I'm, all my work this week is in service of Teferi. Even though I had it as my number two card in the set, I'm starting to worry that maybe I underestimated it a little bit. It maybe belonged to the number one card in the set. Teferi had made me a believer this weekend. I got to play a ton of standard. He's just a dominant card in standard and will be going forward. Such a great planeswalker, and that we, I think to some extent, we slept on it a little bit because it was so kind of plain very planeswalker ish, a classic planeswalker, if you will. But Teferi is even better than he reads on paper.
0: I kind of agree with that, but I definitely don't think that Teferi is, is number one. I don't think it's like runaway, like best card in the set. Like, I don't even necessarily think it's like top five card in the set.
1: Mm, interesting. Uh, I, I would have it as my number one card in standard right now. I think that Karn's applications in other formats still lead me to have Karn as my number one. But just something I considered this weekend when I finally got to uh, you know play some matches with Teferi and just blew me away with how he fundamentally changes blue-white control and a lot of other archetypes going forward. One thing I, I've mentioned a bunch in our Discord is like people always ask how can we identify good cards in a format. And we'll talk more about this later, I think. But one of the things I always say is look for cards that are carrying bad decks to success. Well, all those raft decks, those are Teferi decks. <laughs> don't, don't worry about raft; That's nonsense. But Teferi is the card that's carrying those cards, to, those decks to really good results.
0: I kind of agree with that. Like how many Heart of Curens have you played against? Because that, that seems like the one thing that I've, I, I don't know, like I've been beating up on these, these blue white decks, like all, all the different flavors of them, basically just with heart of Kieran and Teferi has never really seemed like a thing that is like super scary to me.
1: Yeah. So I, if I were, if you were asking me what card to attack blue white with heart of Kieran would be my answer. I think that's hundred percent correct. I prepared for that in my deck list because I, I knew that was a vulnerability point. So I have Gideon in my main deck, which does a fine job of like answering Heart of Kirin while you're able to, you know, get to settle range and, and figure out a more stable plan going forward. And I also have artifact removal in my sideboard, be it the destroy target artifact enchantment gain for life or fragmentize. I've, I've played some combination of all of those and I think they're fine choices. So you can even do like sorcerer spyglass type stuff. There's answers out there.
0: Word. No, I, I definitely agree with that. I don't know. It just, it just feels weird that you're on this blue white train when like it's it's the most popular deck basically and obviously your deck is a little bit different and you are doing a better job of addressing the actual threats to your livelihood than i think a lot of the other people are but like i don't know do do you want to be the person that has the target on your back and also when like heart of kieran is the card that is ticking up it's like it's not just hard it's also like the decks that play hard also seem like particularly scary. So, right. I don't know. Like, blue-white is not where I would want to be right now.
1: No, I get that. And, and you know, part of my embrace of Teferi was I was down in it this weekend, right? I was playing all the events that have kind of painted this picture that we can now sit here and do this podcast and say, oh, it looks like blue-white's the best deck. So, you know, going forward this week, I could very well find myself in other places. In fact, I was already thinking of, like, you know, white-black Karn decks, red-black Karn decks that I could play into the blue-white decks to uh, exploit their vulnerabilities to Heart of Kirin if the decks aren't built properly. So I'm with you. I get what you're saying. Just right out the gate, I was impressed by Teferi. Won a lot of packs this weekend, treasure chests this weekend, playing with it. So uh, for now, I'm Teferi's imp. Things will always change going forward, though. You know that. We stay adaptable at the game podcast.
0: Oh, yeah. I will We try. Well, we'll break right there, I guess. I do want to talk about Heart of Kirin decks, especially white-black and red-black, because I've been playing a lot of those. But we should probably talk about last week's episode. and like. Uh, how cool it was like it was very well received it was like another one of those things where we're trying something new and we basically just went through the first deckless dump for dominaria standard uh, deck by deck i think there were 39 and just talked about like our th- our thought process and how we evaluated each of the decks and just kind of gave people an insight into what we do every time a deckless dump shows up and uh people seem to like it so that was great yeah, I
1: think it's something we'll come back to going forward. The all all the response I got was very positive. And you know, you're exactly right. We did that not so much because we wanted to talk about each of those decks, although that, you know, that was part of it, but really we wanted to show people how we go through a deck dump like that and and what we're looking at, what points catch our eyes, what what are we using to inform our, ourselves going forward. That's really what that episode was all about. And it seems like people got that, you know, are going to apply a lot of what we did to their own analysis in the future. So that's always good to see.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think Especially if Wizard stays with this model where they just release like, you know, 40 decks for week one of Standard or whatever, like that might just be the show that we have every week one. I think so. I think people were on
1: board with that. Maybe this is a good time to check in. What do you think about, you know, we're a few months into this deck dump model now. Are you still on board or do you still think this is a great way for us to be getting information?
0: From my very biased point of view, I am very happy to be getting a lot of information because Uh, it it just like helps inform my decisions and it gives me like more ideas for ways to build decks. So I don't know. I I think it is mostly good because if there's like a deck that I see that is unique or doing something unique that I wouldn't necessarily see otherwise, like that makes it more likely that I do something off the beaten path rather than just like contribute to like, you know, the mono red blue black mid range metagame that we had last season for the most part. Right. Right. But also after thinking about it some more, uh, it's kind of like self-fulfilling, right? Where they post like a decklist dump and it has a bunch of different copies of blue-white control and, you know, like maybe mo- the mono-red decks are like all kind of like similar. So there's only a few of them showing up. But like, it's not meant to be an actual snapshot of the metagame, but because that's the way the information gets distributed out into the wild like it kind of just becomes the metagame
1: yeah so people are, are misusing the information presented to them and then it it snowballs from there that's an interesting take I, I don't know if that's happening i mean if you think about it look we could go around in circles with this forever but yeah, if you think absolutely. About it, if you think about a deck that only has one way to be built and therefore it only shows up one time that to some extent points to the fact that it's well built at that stage there's not much more evolution to go through we've we've hit the final form so that has an impact on how playable deck is i don't know there's all kinds of permutations i guess i just want to say that as far as wizards stated goals go with releasing information to me this seems like a very good method of achieving those goals. Now, whether or not I agree with those goals is a whole different issue that I I don't really want to get into, but for what they're trying to do, I appreciate this method of relaying information to us. And I've still found it fruitful to look at these deck lists every single day. I like that I have something interesting to look at every single day. So again, maybe I'm being a little selfish with my answer, but I I do still like the deck dump method that they're using.
0: Well, let's say stated goals are You know, you want to release some information and get people excited about, like, various decks and everything, but you don't necessarily want to give them, like, hey, here is the metagame and, like, here is how you can break this or whatever. But if what is happening is they are releasing information that therefore shapes the metagame, like, they're kind of just doing the same, like, the thing that they don't want to do, but in reverse,
1: yeah, I, I know how you can perceive it that way. I guess any information released is going to necessarily have an effect on the metagame. There's no way, there's no way to put forth this information without shaping players' conceptions to some extent. And I think that the opening of doors, the the vaulting of ideas, the sharing the pillars of new archetypes, is doing more for diversity than you know, the alternative of, I mean, I guess I don't know what the alternative is at this point, certainly more than the old system. And again, it's hard to say because that was a very stagnant format and a very defined format for the last you know, year and a half. We've had really some issues with standard. So it's hard to say if that was because of the method of sharing information or just a symptom of you know, poor design at that point in time. Again, we could go around in circles forever, but uh, yeah. I, I like the way things stand.
0: Well, one thing I will note that even if that is the case, there is a, a lot of diversity even within like isolated deck archetypes. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like I can I can put a blanket percentage on the supposed winners metagame, right, and say that like twenty eight percent based on these numbers is is blue X control or you know like flash style decks like things that are going like a little bit bigger, right? And it's like oh that's that's like kind of scary and kind of bad, like almost thirty percent being one deck, but like each blue white deck you play against is going to be like kind of a unique experience and you should be sideboarding against them very differently. And then that's not even counting like the blue red controls and the blue black controls and stuff. So like it does kind of look like there's a lot of blue white decks out there, but they are all pretty different.
1: I think so. I've seen a tremendous amount of diversity in the way uh, control decks are being built right now. I think a lot of people are doing it wrong, but that's besides the point. I'm sure we'll get into that later.
0: Right. And obviously like once the pro tour happens and everything like the, the metagame will get narrowed down to some degree, but
1: we're not sure. quite there
0: yet. Yep.
1: Still a few more weeks to go.
0: Right. So show is good. I don't feel the need to necessarily like go through the deckless dump, you know, deck by deck every single week or whatever, but it's definitely something that we're going to revisit. And, you know, like you said, like I, I've enjoyed going through and looking at just a bunch of decks every day. Like it, it just makes me happy.
1: Right. Right. Totally selfish reasons. I'm I'm on board with it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, wh- whatever. Like, if, if people are also happy, then then cool. And hopefully it doesn't cause things to be too stagnant or anything. Yep. I'm with you. But we'll see. So, back to talking about Heart of Kirin then, or? Sure. We can talk about Heart. I mean, I, I think... Probably
1: the starting point for our discussion is this PTQ, the Magic Online PTQ that just happened. I've always been of the opinion that of these week one results, I put a lot more stock in the Magic Online PTQ results than like a standard open, but especially this week where the standard was teams and that very much shaped the archetype. I think the best place to kind of start with our assessment of the format is in this PTQ.
0: Right. And I I definitely agree with you. I think the the team stuff... The results are valid. The only issue is that you don't know exactly like what the standard player's record actually was. Yep. So it's it's just very difficult to actually evaluate because it's like, yeah, they're on a winning team, but like maybe they went four and 10 or something. Like you never know. Uh, but whereas this PTQ, there's, you know, 200 and some players, if I remember correctly. Yeah, 231. Mm-hmm. And everyone's bringing their A game, right? Like you're trying to win a PTQ, but one thing I will note is that there were like three premier events also this weekend. There were two team GPs and the team open. So how stacked was this tournament? Like, we don't know.
1: Could be a little bit softer field than the, the typical week one. You know, still some very good players. I recognize here we have Autumn Burchett in the, the top eight. A few other ringers floating around here.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's just like, okay, maybe there's like three in the top 32 instead of the usual like 10 or 15. So it right. is... It Again, it, it just makes things a little tough to evaluate. And you just have to take everything with like a grain of salt. You know, like none of this is gospel.
1: Exactly. Still something to be learned though. You can yeah. learn a lot in, you know, non-perfect information. There, there's always takeaways.
0: Yeah. Or trick yourself. One of the t-
1: <laughs> It depends. We're here to make sure you don't <laughs> trick yourself. That's our job to keep people from tricking themselves.
0: Or we're going to do our best. All right. So the winning deck is cool. What do you think about this? This green, white weirdness. Well, I- I'm excited to talk about this deck
1: because I both have no idea how to ever build a deck like this, nor do I ever succeed with this style of deck. You know, I'm thinking back to something like Green, White, Megamorph, and, you know, other historical, like, I I classify all these as, like, Kibler decks. Like, War Elf on turn one, and then creatures that do something, and uh, you're attacking sometimes, you're able to play a quasi-controlish role when you need to. I struggle so much with both playing and building these decks so I'm fascinated when they have success. I honestly don't know what to make of this. This is a deck I would never choose to play. It just looks like some creatures with, you know, a mishmash of abilities and I know that when these pieces combine, they're worth more than the the parts individually. The sum of the parts is much greater and, and something special comes out of this. And I played I I don't know if I played this person, Team 5C, who actually won the PTQ. I played against a very similar list to this in the course of the PTQ. And I, I was impressed by what it was able to do.
0: Yeah, it, I think it looks good to me. And it's also very interesting because they're using a lot of cards that not a lot of other people are using. So you see a lot of the green white decks with like the full explore package, they'll have Merfolk Branch Walker, Jade Light Ranger, and Wild Growth Walker. Mm -hmm. but with mono red being on the decline, you don't need like a strictly life gain card all that much. It's more just about board presence. Right.
1: Right. And then once you've made that determination, it's like, well, do I really need these jade light Rangers?
0: Right. Which is like kind of a weird take because my issue with these decks a lot of the time is just, if you like miss a land drop or you flood out like green outside of like the course of crew fixes and tireless trackers, like, Generally, don't have a whole lot of like velocity or like control over their draws or anything. So, yeah, you're just kind of like at the whim of like the first 12 cards of your deck or whatever. So, usually, usually, usually. that's the case. But
1: look, look at what we have here. Oh, yeah. The Karn father himself coming to smooth out draws a little bit. Not Free to cards treasure map as well. And two
0: treasure maps, yeah. So, I actually played a decent amount with treasure map recently and I just found it like too slow. I love treasure map. I love it to death, but it seems like its time has passed, kind of like Scarab God-esque.
1: Huh. I, I wonder how much his decision or his, his or her decision to play treasure map was related to the inclusion of Karn. If they just felt like they needed to have that burst of artifacts where they could put a 5-5 onto the board very quickly with Karn, if that was you know what served their game plan. I don't know. I don't know how much that played into the decision-making. Yeah, I haven't thought a lot about Treasure Map's place in the format lately just because I think there's a lot of other new tools. Again, Karn comes to mind, another colorless card that every deck has a- access to that can play a somewhat similar role.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, just In actually playing the games, I just didn't like it, but I wasn't playing it in Llanowar Elf decks. So maybe that's just one of those things where it's like, well, this deck is, is going to have like a mana floating here or there. You're going to be able to find times to actually use it, but... It just strikes me as is kind of odd because if like treasure map was good, you think there would be like another copy hanging out on the sideboard or something, but they have Nyssa Vital Force and Lifecrafter's Sherry doing kind of similar stuff. So very similar, yeah. I, I sorta get it, but uh I do think that, yeah, without Karn keying off artifacts, you probably would not see as many treasure maps in this list. Something about
1: this list that which kind of strikes me is it's playing Lana or Elves without a ton of threes that you necessarily want to get to. And treasure map kind of crappily fills that role i mean scrying one isn't a world beater but it, it is a place to put that kind of extra mana where i'm not sure the curve is really designed to maximize land Elves. and maybe that's smart maybe you just want land Elves to play that kind of role and you know where you get a turn for lyra it's making all the difference but you're okay with just getting little plinks of value throughout the throughout the game and not needing it to facilitate that one to three curve every time
0: yeah, I mean, even, even if you play like a scattered groves on turn two and play like a branch walker or something, I think as long as you're playing things like Karn and Lyra ahead of schedule, Lana Elves is worth it. But like you also have Brontodon, Aether Sphere Harvester, and you know, obviously like Lana Elves into Rishkar is not ideal, but you mm. know, the, these are things that happen and it like it just scales up so nice, with, like walking Ballista, like going into the later turns, it's an extra creature that. Uh, can come down on a turn where you're otherwise basically not doing anything for Shauna. So like, I, I think it does just kind of snowball even if you're not trying to hard ramp like one three four.
1: Mm-hmm. I could see that.
0: But yeah, like this deck is interesting. I I'm also surprised to not see as many copies of Shalai because Shalai has been very very good.
1: Yeah, Shalai was a card. Um... I haven't played much with it, but in playing against it, usually playing Settle the Wreckage. So that, that's changing my opinion of the card, certainly. Right. Uh, but I've been very impressed with Shalai. It, it does much more than you would expect from the text on the card. Like the fact that you just have to kill it before you can do anything. You're not interacting with your opponent unless you remove Shalai first, basically. That's pretty game-changing. And, and I think this was a card I undervalued a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think I think I did too. And I didn't know that she actually stops settle the wreckage. I just like didn't even think about how like settle targets the opponent and she actually stops that. So, yep. Like settle is it's basically supplanted Vraska's contempt at this point. Like settle is the the big card that a lot of these control decks are leaning on to deal with the hard to deal with threats.
1: Right. I I agree. That's where control is at at this point.
0: So, you're going to do things like play a Teferi, on tap two lands, pass with four mana open, and then I'm going to play a Shalai and like you either counter it or you don't. Either way, you're not casting settled wreckage this turn.
1: Exactly. It puts you in really awkward position as the control player quite often.
0: Yeah, so that that card has been excellent for me. And I've actually just been trying to build green-white decks like based around Shalai And just like trying to maximize her effect, either like hex-proofing Lyra or just as like this late-game mana sink.
1: I played against an interesting uh Abzan deck, which had winding constrictor and it's one of those things where like you probably don't need to make shalive much better than it is but those times you do i'm sure you can see how that gets out of control very very quickly
0: yeah game over yep so yeah i I wouldn't be surprised to see green white creep up a little bit more i mean there's a lot of green decks in the metagame currently between like this and mono green and like mono green with various splashes right like there are some splashing red some splashing black and the green red dinosaurs decks and all that but like which, which one is better? It's funny that just a
1: few short months ago, we were talking about green having its legs cut out from under it, saying that there was really no reason to play green anymore. How quickly does one Llanowar Elf <laughs> change the equation of, of whether green's worth it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's just Llanowar Elf. Like, it, it is certainly having access to a good secondary color to play with. Like, you, you have Shauna, Lyra, good removal. All the yep. green decks have access to Karn and vehicles if they want them, which are all pretty well positioned right now because of the prevalence of blue-eye control. And then, yeah, Steel Leaf Champion, like that's obviously a card. And I, th- I think they got more than War Elves, but obviously War Elves is a big pickup. Right, that's the starting point. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so this the second place deck is the deck that I like a lot. Same. This is White Black Vehicles. And this I, I posted this deck before last weekend on the Patreon where I was like, I I wrote my article about red black on Wednesday and then on Thursday I started playing with various white black decks and tuned something that ended up looking pretty close to this and I was like, okay, this might be the truth.
1: Yeah, this deck just looks great to me. And talk about solving the problem of like what the other two drop is that can crew your hearts. Night of Malice does it so well in this deck and you know, we're talking about how blue white control is very much asserting itself in the metagame. Night of Malice makes a few cards from that deck look a little silly. It's it's difficult for those decks to answer. And I really like that as the other two drop for the vehicles decks going forward. And plus, is this is a deck which maximizes history of Benelia really well. It's not quite as all in as some of the other, you know, mono white builds. It's able to play that more fractured game. And I have a feeling that this deck does the transformational sideboard thing too against decks like say mono green that can just get much bigger than this deck, um, which I think could otherwise present problems for an archetype like this. I have a feeling that in post board games, this deck is just fine against something like Mono Green.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to see a little bit more interaction for bigger creatures like either another Fumigate or another Settle the Wreckage. Yep, second Fumigate. sounds good. Yeah, my transformational plans have typically gone like a a little heavier than this. Like this seems just like kind of like a light inclusion, but uh, I'm on board with a lot of what this deck is doing, and I don't disagree with much from this deck list. Mm-hmm
1: kind of, I guess this is the time to raise my contrarian point of the podcast, now that we've talked about back-to-back decks with many, many copies of Lyra included, I kind of find found Lyra underwhelming in all my games this weekend. And I know that's going to shock a lot of people because it seems like she's very much setting the pace of the format, but I think the best decks are already starting to bring their answers. The, the most well-constructed decks. For instance, I played against Mono Red, and played lyra a few times and i'm like well this game's over gg game one you know i, I play my yeah. lyra I'm at, I'm at a stable life total did you get uh, fight with fired here comes fight with fire blowing me out <laughs> later on in the game it's tending me too so there, there's that to add to the equation
0: oh wow yeah they like settle the wreckage you and then
1: yep Yep. And then you have a lot of mana floating around. Look, I think if I was playing mono red, which is not something I want to do right now. So don't take this as an endorsement of mono red. If I was, I do think I would have four fight with fire in the main deck. Like, look at these lists. How often are you really disappointed to see fight with fire? Not that often. Against blue white, it's at its worst, but it has a second mode. And you just talked about the settle the wreckage thing where you're you're given this dearth of mana. So... I don't know. That's how I would look to build mono red. I'm not a mono red master, so you can throw that out the window if you want, but I know that my red decks would start with four fight with fire.
0: Yeah. I mean, the the thing is, is that the red decks aren't like a burn deck and they haven't been for quite some time, you know? Right. Like we, yeah. we've seen, we've seen magma spray replace shock in a lot of the lists. And now with like chain whirler, people are cutting on on crop crasher. It's like, you got to rethink exactly how your red deck should be built at this point. And Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me, actually, if, like, Fight with Fire and, you know, maybe something like Treasure Map or whatever, like, could help you ramp into this thing. Like, yeah, I I would be completely not shocked if that is how the red decks end up looking.
1: Treasure map is is a nice thought in in combination with fight with fire. But like three mana kill almost everything in the format, that's not a bad deal. It's really not, even at sorcery speed. And then when you add on this kind of, you know, I mentioned it as kind of the new Ramanap ruins, where if you just sit there forever and get to this point, obviously this doesn't apply against you know blue white decks it looks kind of silly against them when you're trying to resolve your nine mana sorcery but it does happen from time to time that you catch them with their pants down and just win the game on the spot and certainly against other archetypes it it, it will do that quite regularly so yeah. i don't know that's where i'd start
0: interesting i mean the blue white decks don't play a ton of counter spells typically i mean yours your your version might
1: Right. I may be, I may be too into my own version right now. I should probably pump the brakes on that a little bit. That's not the most useful information for people listening, but that being said, I'm very high on my version of this deck right now. So.
0: Yeah. And I, I just got done talking about how much I dislike treasure map, but th- I think the the difference is that like mono red is getting onto the battlefield a lot quicker and forcing your opponent to react to you. It's just, like, right. if you're on the, if you're on the back foot and you have a treasure map, it just feels so bad. But like even in that case, like Monorad has Chain Whirler, Shock, like cheap removal. So I, I think Treasure Map is probably fine in this sort of deck. Yeah, I could get into that. Interesting. Okay, I'm gonna write that down. Oh, dude, we could we could get some Jaya action in this deck. What do you think? Uh, I am
1: not sold on Jaya just on power level, but I get what you're saying. Once you start looking in this direction, and you're thinking about, you know, reliably casting this spell for its its back half. Sure, Jaya begins to make sense, and I, I'm sure you know there's a lot of other avenues you could explore with this hybrid kind of half big red, half aggressive deck that that may prove much better than you would expect at first glance.
0: You gotta play Soulscar Mage, Boemac Courier. I
1: think so. I mean, Boemac Courier is just like. An insanely good card. Uh, I think we're all at that point. You're, you don't start cutting that card. It's never going to be correct. Like force them to have it. The games where they don't answer it, you just win every time. That's, that's worth the gamble. I'm fine with that. And you need that early plink damage. Otherwise your fight with fire is going to be meaningless anyway. So.
0: Right. Yeah. If you need to cast two of that thing, it's a, a lot less realistic than just casting one. Right. Uh. So yeah, white, white black. I like with a transformational sideboard plan. I, uh, to your point about Lyra, I think Lyra is much better in a deck that is presenting threats because you run them out of removal, right? So like a right. lot of the cards that could kill Heart of Kieran or like Aether Sphere Harvester or whatever, like kill a big creature are gonna be able to kill Lyra, but you're like actually like getting those out of their hand, like the disintegrations or stealaways, aways cast outs, whatever, you know?
1: Sure, sure. It's kind of playing the role of like the the typical glory bringer-ish type finisher in in these vehicles deck you've exhausted all your opponent's resources and here's this card to just close the game out i get that
0: yeah except she immediately stabilizes you
1: like yeah. assuming assuming she Without doesn't leave the battlefield
0: spell. yeah assuming she doesn't immediately leave the battlefield like she is gonna almost immediately stabilize you against like basically every deck out there unless you're getting attacked by galta you know
1: yeah i think i think green gets over it in a few other spots like they have things like blossoming defense but I'm not really arguing the point. I just I, I found a few spots where Lyra was overcome, and I kind of thought a lot of times here's my Lyra, I can't lose, and I I found that many decks had ways around it more than I would expect.
0: Right. Well, they're adapting, and right. so right. I don't I don't like Lyra in like my you know counter your thing, kill your thing. Okay, this is the first threat that I play. I mm-hmm. absolutely hate that strat because even if they like they're like okay, I'll double abrade it or whatever, you know, like. Every deck is going to have a way to deal with the first one, at least. So I want to like bleed out their interaction and then use it as the top end in my white deck. So like in the green-white deck or the white-black vehicles decks, I like a couple copies of Lyra. main.
1: Yeah, that seems like the best application for Lyra right now.
0: It it just like it stops their heart of Kirans, you know, and that's a, that's a big deal. Obviously, it's like the worst threat possible against control, but whatever.
1: Yeah, you take what you can get against control. Anything that sticks on the battlefield, you're you're pretty happy with. So.
0: Yeah, uh, I like 25 land. I like cast out fatal push as the removal suite. I don't really like seal away. Uh,
1: In this deck, it's a little awkward, right? You want to be attacking a lot of the times and seal away is not good for that purpose.
0: Yeah, seal away is like a reasonable bridge into your sideboard plan. But even then, like, I feel like you could just have an extra cast out an extra fatal push or even like an extra Gideon
1: cast downs an option as well. Um, You know, there's there's other cards out there you could be playing in this slot, I think.
0: Yep, for sure. And when I was playing this deck, one of the things I noticed that was um, it was a little more difficult to turn on my Knight of Malices than I would have liked. So that might be another reason why the sealways are present.
1: Huh? That's an that's an interesting surprise. I wouldn't have expected that, having not yet played with this. But
0: uh, look at it—you have Toolcraft Exemplar in history of Benalia, cast out. Lyra. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But like th- those are on like later turns, right? Like if you're talking about using this thing to crew Heart of Kieran early on, like right, the, you the, need the, it at that point. Yeah, yes. the normal play pattern is like turn two, heart, turn three, play a thing, crew it, and it's very tough to do that.
1: If if this was a problem that I was looking to address, I, I think I'd start with more copies of Gideon. Gideon has really impressed me. I think its stock has risen a lot. Yeah. Getting back to early Planeswalker, crew my heart of Kieran off the Planeswalker is a nice thing for these decks to have access to one more time.
0: And Gideon is one of the things that has actually been frustrating my heart of Kieran. So yeah, I would definitely plus one a Gideon in this list. And the the other thing that I was like trying to use to solve the Knight of Malice problem was play like two copies of Legion's Landing, which was not great because this deck doesn't go super wide.
1: Right, right.
0: It did do the job. So what I ended up doing was uh sh- just shaving a knight of malice because I didn't want to flood on them because a lot of the time like they're they're just not great.
1: That so. seems like a reasonable option too. Yeah, I could I could get on board with that.
0: So yeah, my, my list is not that much different from this one. And even like duress, settled wreckage, Argul's Bloodfast fast in the sideboard, like I had all this stuff. So I'm I'm thumbs up in this one for sure. This is this has been my most winningest deck on Moto.
1: Uh, I'm with you on the thumbs up. This gets a, a resounding endorsement from me. Very nice deck.
0: All right. Blue white flash. Thumbs down.
1: Aggressive thumbs down. Quick thumbs down.
0: <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm I'm right there with you. Raf uh, is just not a very powerful card.
1: No. Wow. How long is this going to last? I mean, these numbers are already trending down, I think. I think there's fewer Raphs floating around.
0: <laughs> well, they went from like
1: four to three to two. Right? We'll get there eventually. We're on our way to zero, which is going to be, I think, the correct number when we get to the end of this Raph obsession that we're currently in. This deck is succeeding off of other cards. I, I truly and honestly believe that. And you're probably handicapping yourself with RAF. You know, No one ever comes back to, like after people play with these decks, I never hear someone say like, "Oh, Raft's the absolute truth. This is the card to play going forward." It's just like, eh, it was okay, but people still play it. No, no one's cutting them, despite feeling that way. So, well, that's I don't because know.
0: that's because they want to play a mid range deck with more threats, and it's like it, you're playing historic cards and you're blue and white, and it like disguises your settle the wreckages or vice versa. You know, so it's like I, I get the appeal. The problem is like the card just falls short on like every metric.
1: You're right, all the rates are not there, and. I honestly believe what this card is doing is enabling Teferi, but guess what? Teferi is so good, you don't have to enable it. Like, just play the card. You'll win a lot of games off the back of simply playing Teferi's.
0: Agreed. Uh, The next deck in the top eight is straight mono green, which I'm fine with. I I would like a Scrap Heap, Scrounger, Splash, but uh, it's not that big of a deal.
1: I also would like more Heart of Kirin's here. I think that when this deck doesn't have Heart of Kirin, it's kind of a little too soft to some of the other, other stuff being played right now. I just want a little bit more staying power against that. And like you said, Scrap peeps Grounder is also a fine way to go about pressuring those cards. So yeah, I think this deck has a few tweaks to make before it's really running away with things, but definitely a player and not a deck I hate.
0: Yeah. Like Sky Sovereign. What is, what is this actually hitting these days? Huh? I'm not sure. Like not much, and they have four rampagers. Like that—that's about as good as you're going to get with Hardikiran.
1: Yeah, I would move away from Sky Sovereign. That's a nice place to start. Maybe that's where you get your splash from. I also think Ronus is pretty good right now, which is not something I've said in a while—a card that I've been down on. But when you're playing into something like Settle the Wreckage, it allows you a little bit more in the range of strategic options. Like you can pressure Settle the Wreckage effectively when you have access to a Ronus. So maybe a second copy of that card would be beneficial as well.
0: Yeah, I, one of the decks that I saw that had the black splash had three copies, which seems a little heavy to me, but
1: that's intense. Yeah, uh, two seems like the sweet spot.
0: Yep, uh, another copy of Mono Green Aggro, a lot of copies of Blossoming Defense, which is pretty interesting. The the fourth place deck had three copies, so look out.
1: Yeah, card's gonna be around, and I think rightfully so. Uh,
0: and then we have Autumn's list of blue white. She. Just wrote an article for Star City that went up uh, today, Tuesday, the day that we're recording this. And her article is good and her list looks good.
1: Yeah, I have some fundamental disagreements, but I think there's probably two successful ways to approach this deck right now. And the Torrential Gear Hulk way is is just fine. Like I keep mentioning, the PowerPoint is really Teferi here. Um, what you do around it is up to your playstyle and, and what you think is best. I like playing things like pull from tomorrow and getting away from these mopey, mopey four mana draw twos. I don't know when we as Magic players convinced ourselves that we were totally okay paying four mana for our draw twos, but this is a sad state of affairs and I'm done with it. I'm, I'm not doing the glimmer of genius hieroglyphic illumination thing anymore. I'm off it. I've suffered with it long enough. I have a better win condition than Torrential Gear Hulk. I don't need to lean on it anymore. So I'm taking my pull from tomorrow's back. That's, that's the card I want. I want to draw five in the late game or seven in the late game and just close the game out. So that's where I'm at. I, I don't think Torrential Gearhulk is necessary. And I like just blanking all the creature removal in game ones. It's, it's a nice spot to be in.
0: Well, you're blanking creature removal, but how are you actually winning the game?
1: Teferi. You don't need anything else. You, ju- you just ultimate Teferi. No, you have I, I, no permanence in play. And then you minus three. Against a control mirror. That, that actually works. For sure, yeah. I I have one Control Mirrors that way. I also have two Ebnu Rivulets as well as uh, two Scavenger Grounds, so that's another option as well. Um, But you can absolutely get the game to a point where you leave them with no permanence in play, you have no cards in your library, you minus Teferi targeting itself, and just draw Teferi every turn. And uh, that's a very viable game plan to win matches of magic once you have the emblem on the board.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense, but yeah, it just, it seems tough depending on how many counter spells they have.
1: Right. I mean, you, you play a game based around Teferi and that's, it's challenging for sure. And it's a certain type of control that I get a lot of people don't like. I love it though. That's exactly what I want to be doing in my control lists.
0: I like that. And I I think that is viable online. It's a little tougher in real life. And I'm also a little concerned that instead of like these cheap draw twos, like, Pulling on four mana is not great, but you do need like some amount of velocity. I don't know if you're playing like a third search. Uh, I have two opt and two search. Okay. Yeah. God, opt is so bad. I would just play illumination over opt. Uh, You could do that. I don't hate that at all, actually. I think that's a totally reasonable approach. And then... Uh, Gear Hulk is like a split card with more settled wreckages. So I would be a little concerned that you might just like run out of actual answers against things like white, black, like decks that are hitting you like pretty hard with a lot of threats that need specific answers, but that's it. Yeah. My
1: experience has just been that if you can stabilize in those early turns and, and fire off a pull for anywhere in the range from three to five, you can generally pull out from that spot. I'd also note too, that people seem so opposed to pull on two. If your land count is high enough and you're not as dependent on like playing your four draw spell to hit your fifth land drop, which I think these 25 land decks often do, if your land count's higher, you can get away with the pull for two on turn four where you really need to find a little bit more action. Is it pretty? No, it's it's not pretty. I'm not going to lie, but it does the job. It's getting you two cards deeper, which is really what you're looking for in those spots most of the time anyway. Uh, and then you re- recoup card advantage down the road when you fire off your next pole for five or six. So it felt good to be casting those big X draw spells again. It brought me back to the Sphinx's Rev days.
0: Sure. Yeah. 20, 25 land, I think is kind of nonsense.
1: Yeah. It's pushing it for sure.
0: Like your cards are so powerful. Like why do you mm-hmm. need to draw so many spells?
1: Just play your cards and you'll you'll win in a lot of spots. Super powerful card. I mean, Search and Teferi are very, very high quality cards in the context of standard.
0: Yep. And then next list is Black Green Constrictor, like Steve Mann style, Chupacabra's Adventurous Impulses. And then eighth place deck is Green White, Splashing the Homie, Teferi.
1: Yeah, obviously, I, I love Teferi's presence here. I don't know if it's worth the splash. I'm not going to comment on that just because not enough experience with the green-white deck. But, you know, doing a lot of the same thing where it's able to play that really mid rangey role and, you know, a, a few more alternate crews for Heart of Kieran. I don't know if that's what you're really in the market for here. But, again, just a powerful card, and it's going to contribute in every deck it shows up in. So,
0: Well, the green cards in this deck are four Lane Royals, four Branchwalker, two Sermon of the Conduit, three Thrashing it on full stop. So you're basically playing green for, like, acceleration, some velocity, and a disenchant.
1: So could you just, like, treasure map instead pretty safely? Or no, just play? no, no,
0: no, no. So, like, I tried playing with that deck, and that's where I thought treasure map was bad.
1: Okay, the reactive deck, it was no good.
0: Yeah, like, if you're going to play, like, blue-white flash or something, I would look at trying something like this. Like, instead of Raf, you play Llanowar Elves. Like... That sounds kind of silly, and you know, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, or whatever. But like, I am pretty sure that your results will be better. Hmm. Well, it is playing that you know lightning
1: rod role very efficiently. We talked about how Lyra is much more effective when you're demanding all of these cards get answered, and we're certainly trained to kill Llanowar Elves and kill Servant of the Conduit on the spot because you don't want to see turn three Karn. So you know, when you do get to five mana and play your Lyra, much more likely to stick on board at that point.
0: Yeah. Uh, so this ninth place deck was the one that had the three Ronuses and four oh. Karns, four in Love it. Yeah, Karn
1: seems you just it just does everything. It's not really impeding your aggressive plan. It's funny how quick those tokens can kind of add up, right? It 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 sneaks up on you, um, where you're able to present an aggressive clock out of nowhere with just one or two artifacts in play, and then a couple of minus twos, and all of a sudden you're beating down real fast.
0: Yeah, I got attacked by like three ten tens today.
1: Mm-hmm. it happens get used to it it's gonna it's gonna keep happening
0: oh but i got them down to five brian and then they nope. stabilized you okay.
1: gotta get them to zero. five I doesn't know. matter
0: dude i tried so hard inventor's apprentice does not hit that hard though
1: sometimes it doesn't
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh so this top eight notably had five green decks
1: yeah green was a house maybe this is a good time to talk about some of those percentages we we dropped earlier on i know you did an exploration along with some people over in our discord do you want to get into that now
0: Yeah, so uh, Kobe posted this breakdown of, like, all the different deck archetypes, and I did what I do, which is just generalize them. So, like, I'll just kind of put them into buckets, because individually, like, blue-red wizards and mono-red aggro, like, I don't need to know, like, how many of each there are necessarily, because if you're building your your deck or tuning your deck in such a way that you're like trying to fight the metagame in ranges it's just like oh well this sort of card is good against like red aggressive decks right like the specifics don't necessarily matter a lot of the time
1: Mm-hmm. yep you need to get archetypes
0: yeah so i i grouped them all together and uh liam is gonna yell at me for this because uh he was very adamant that these percentages are nonsense, right? Because it includes like the team open, the PTQ and the five O deck dumps. And it's like, you know, the information from the team open is sketchy. The information from the 5 O's is sketchy. Like if, if I say that like 28% of this winner's metagame is Blue X Control, how accurate is that?
1: Well, how much does that matter? I guess that's the question we're leading to, right? Like, does it matter that it's not super accurate or do you just need to know what perception is? Because perception can be reality. And if this is how much people are seeing these decks show up in all of these deck dumps, that's where their head's at. That's what they're seeing the format as. And it also is an indicator of percentages, even if the exact percentages aren't, you know, the truest representation of the metagame.
0: Yeah. My argument was that I'm not going to treat this like gospel. I'm not going to be like, oh blue X control is 28, whereas green X mid range is 23. Therefore like blue is going to get two extra cards in my sideboard or whatever. That's not, it's not really how it works. I think that seeing like some amount of number and even if they're like off by like 5% each or whatever, it's still valuable. And like this, this was like the information that I used to make like the declaration a couple months ago that like white X aggro was like the, you know, second most popular, like general archetype.
1: Mm -hmm. You remember that? I do remember that. And that turned out to be exactly right.
0: Yeah. So uh, looking at this stuff is helpful for me and it may or may not be helpful for you, but like, so I look at this and I see blue X control, 28%, green X mid range, 23%, white X aggro, 19%, red X aggro, 18%, God Pharaoh's gift. Again, all different flavors, 10% black X midrange 4%, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah, and then artifact decks, uh, artifact based decks like antiquities, war, paradoxical outcomes, stuff like that, are three percent. And I didn't actually add to see if this added up to a hundred or not, but whatever, you get the idea.
1: It, yeah, it's in the range. It it tells us what we need to know about where the formats at right now. I think, and and you know, based on my experience of a, a weekend of really jamming Magic Online hard, this sounds about right to me. This this doesn't strike me as really flawed data.
0: Yeah, I I, I mean I agree, but again that that could be a case of like people switching decks based on the 50 deck dumps and the PTQs and stuff so it's like it all just perpetuates itself but who yeah. knows i i don't actually know what's happening i just know that like i look at these numbers i'm also in the queues and i'm definitely skewing this data in like some weird directions you know yes. <laughs> like yes. if people use that at all but my article this week on star city should give you an indicator of that but yeah, I don't know. I think I think this is valuable for me, where it's like, okay, control is is very popular, and the green X mid range decks and white X aggro decks are also very popular, and both of those are like heart of cure decks.
1: Exactly, and this also just speaks so well to why I I love white black vehicles or maybe even red black vehicles as an archetype like transformational sideboard plans to address the white x aggro decks and the green x aggro decks and you're already naturally pressuring these control decks it just seems lined up so well to to fight the early stages of this metagame
0: yeah uh the thing that i will note is that like red black is completely fine it is serviceable but i think the white cards do it so much better okay Chandra, Rekindling Phoenix, Hazarat, Glorybringer, like those cards are actually just not very good right now. And like that's, that's kind of represented in the, the small ish amount of red aggro decks that we're seeing too.
1: Right, right, very true.
0: Like a lot of these decks are just very good at gumming up the ground and then like Hazoret doesn't really do anything. And meanwhile, you're getting attacked for four in the air, or getting attacked with like Steel Leaf Champions and Galtas and stuff, like things that kill you and have evasion.
1: And make Hazaret look small by comparison sometimes. So in- yeah. interesting place we've gotten to in this metagame. This is one of the most impactful set releases I can recall on a very long time. It's absolutely shaken the foundations of the format with, you know, not the hugest card pool. You know, it's a large set, certainly, but not one of the largest large sets. And I think it's just a home run on all fronts. This is This is one of the most exciting times to play Magic in the last few years, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, all these decks are are pretty fun, too, and, like, yep. the games are fun.
1: Yep, I agree with you. Um, I want to share a few numbers from the... PTQ, and these are only from the PTQ. These don't go as wide as, as your data collection. Um, but these were shared with me by Devin Caldwell over in the Discord. And usually I do all this stuff myself and I grab a bunch of interesting numbers and interesting facts from the PTQ results and I share them on the cast. But basically, the second th- these decks got dumped, the PTQ results came out. The Discord was hard at work jamming out these numbers and they already did my work for me. So props to the yeah. Discord. <laughs> Again, a great place to talk about magic. Can't emphasize enough how good that community is. But here's some numbers of some of the most popular cards played in the PTQ. There were 20 Chandra's, a little higher than I would expect. 36 Llanowar Elves, 30 Abrades, 16 Steel Leaf Champions, 12 Fatal Push. How many Vraska's Contempt do you think there were, Jerry?
0: Oh, God, man. I don't know.
1: Eight? Six? Two Vraska's Contempt.
0: Oh, come on.
1: This card was the pillar of the format. Everything was built around Nebraska's Contempt.
0: How many Settle the Wreckages?
1: Uh, 31 Settle the Wreckages.
0: That's actually not a lot. That's that's fewer than I thought.
1: It's in like the top seven or eight most played cards, I think. It's both a lot and not a lot. I get what you're saying. Uh, 42 Lyra Dawnbringer. Zero Mox. Maybe that'll change. We'll see. This is after your article, I guess, comes out when people will actually be hearing this. So maybe you'll have a hand in uh, changing people's perception of the mocks.
0: Dude, I've been trying hard to five zero to get on that deck list dump, but I'm really good at going 4-1.
1: <laughs> it's coming. I have faith. Another card which did not show up. Zero copies of the Scarab God. Actually zero copies in the top 32. It's almost like that card isn't good anymore. It's almost like it hasn't been good for a while. So this was one of the most asked questions we had over in our discord for this episode. A lot of people wanting us to talk about why is Scarab God not good anymore? So break it down for us. Why is Scarab God not seeing the same level of play it did
0: previously? What's happening here? So before when you would cast Hazoret, like they would have maybe played a two mana thing and a three mana thing. And then if your Hazoret didn't get to attack next or like immediately it would get to attack the next turn. Right. Mm-hmm. And Even if it's not attacking, like, you know, you could block with it. So Hazrat was good. Now, by the time you play Hazrat, they have, like, four things in play. Because, like, the mana's better, the curves are lower, people have more good cards. It just, like, doesn't do the same thing. And similarly, you play the Scare of God, you get a vanilla 5-5, and they're they're already going to swarm around you. And it it has the same Lyra problem, where, like, if that's the first big thing you played, like, if you're playing Blue-Black Control like they're just going to have their cast out or whatever at the ready to get rid of your first threat. But even then they could probably just attack you around it and it wouldn't matter. Or like they just turtle up and like hide behind cards and start drawing cards and stuff. Like either way, you're, you're kind of screwed because the scare of God doesn't impact the board immediately. So even if you get to untap with scare of God, you pay four mana to make a four, four, maybe that four, four does something. Maybe it doesn't, but for the most part, it's just, it's not as impactful as, as it needs to be for the amount of mana that you're spending. Whereas you play Lyra and there are very few situations where if she doesn't immediately leave the battlefield that like, you just can't attack, right? Mm -hmm. Like five, five flying first strike lifelink is, is just like a very good ball of stats. Whereas Scarab God being five, five ground pounder that basically doesn't do anything is it's just not. And also Lyra makes people go over to like, blue-white instead of blue-black a little bit, but I think it is just, like, the combination of uh, Seal Away and Lyra, and the fact that, like, Settle of Wreckage is really good at cleaning up, like, these wide boards, or at least, like, threatening to clean it up, whereas, like, Fraska's Contempt is just a little too slow. Like, you need Settle the Wreckage and maybe Fumigate to actually, like, deal with the wide boards, whereas before, people would just be like, I have one Rekindling Phoenix, or I have one Scarab God, and now they've been attacking you with Hardikiran for two turns, so... One Vraska's Contempt is not going to do it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good assessment. I also think that this strange thing happened around Scarab God. And I'm not going to lie, we played a part in this. We played a part in this hive mind thinking that enabled Scarab God's rise. But at least early on in the last format, there was a strange Scarab God arms race going on, where as opposed to people finding ways to actually go around Scarab God, either go under it, around it, ignore it everyone just played this Scarab God arms race where there were more like more answers to Scarab God, more virtual copies of Scarab God and things like Gonti or Liliana. And we all consented as, as a collective to playing these games based around Scarab God. And for the longest time, that was the status quo. All you had to do was keep escalating the Scarab God arms race. And that's how you were finding success in the format. But even by the end of last format, without any influence from Dominaria whatsoever, People got sick of playing that game. And if you look at the last GP, that had happened to its fullest. It was dominated by Blue Red God Pharaoh's Gift, your red-black archetype. Finally, the Scarab God had been properly ignored, and people backed away from the Scarab God arms race. Um, And it's a very strange, I I can't really recall an analog in magic history where it seems like we all just consented to be like, this is the access we're all fighting on. Here's where all the technology goes. But if you just looked at every article on Star City was about uh, either Grixis or Blue Black Midrange, and that's all anyone wanted to talk about and play and iterate on. So a really, really strange experience. But I think Scarab God is just falling back to the place where like, He probably should have been for a long time. We probably should have sought more creative answers to the Scarab God. And I talked a little bit about bad standards prior to this. I think we almost got in this mode of thinking where when you identify the best thing, all you have to do is iterate on it. And that's how you figure out how to succeed in the format. Because we had been doing that for a year and a half because there were some things which were just clearly better than everything else. Well, that's not the case anymore. We're playing real magic these days. And we have to get back into that constant evolution, the constant cycle of, uh, you know, Question response, question response. And that's what magic's going to look like in the Dominaria era as well, I think.
0: Yeah. And I don't know. It's it's weird because I, I feel like I didn't necessarily participate in a lot of that stuff because I always thought that Grixis was pretty bad. And I would try and play with those decks and like always just be like, this mana is awful. And I would draw the wrong removal spell or whatever. I was writing about like Adanto Vanguard and then eventually ended up playing Red Black. And it is difficult to deny that the Scare of God is a very powerful card, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it, it was never what I wanted to be doing because I, I always felt like there's a better way to answer it and especially a better way to like answer it than just like directly remove it. You know, mm-hmm. maybe it's go around it. Maybe it's go over the top of it. Like there, there are other ways to uh, answer or ignore cards other than just removing them. And I think now, Dominaria has either given people a bunch of tools or like given tools to people where they built new shiny things that yep. happen to be good against Scarab God. So, you know, maybe history of Benalia and the extra awesome white cards are kind of to blame for this or whatever, but like, you know, maybe those cards or those decks aren't even that good, but it's just like, Oh, Hey, like this, this deck is like good against blue, black mid range or whatever. Like, Black is just not a very big part of what's going on right now. Like it, it's effectively Scrap Heap Scrounger, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. To that effect, I, I have some more numbers. So here are the basic lands that were played in the PTQ. Again, these are courtesy of Devin Caldwell. 132 Plains, 69 Island, 124 Mountain, 105 Forest, 6 Swamp.
0: No kidding.
1: <laughs> 6 Swamp. Yes, that is the number of swamps that were played in the PTQ. Kind of an incredible number. Damn. One last number. Do you want to guess the most played card in the PTQ?
0: Aether Sphere Harvester. Close.
1: I don't think that's correct. It's actually not on this list, so that may be a little bit further down. What we had identified as the most played card was Walking Ballista. So, oh, same yeah. concept, okay. colorless yep, yep, card yep, yep. that fits that's all cool. over the place. 47 copies of Walking Ballista. You know, these colorless cards will always make an impact all around an awesome format. I'm so excited to play more of the standard. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening below the surface here. There's still so much work to do. Yep. So much to explore. There's a lot of untouched stuff. And I know you're getting into that this week. And by this point, you will have gotten into that. People have read the Mox article and know what you're working on. And there's potential there. I'm not, I'm not a believer yet, but I know there's potential there. And I think if the
0: right list shows up, uh, Mox will be a player in the metagame. It's really dumb that I could 4-0 every single league and no one would ever believe me. Like I need to just do five 5- <laughs> a five-o once and then have another person five-o, and then that's game, right?
1: I don't I don't it's not that I don't believe you. I, I I know the deck has potential. I'm not disputing that. I just I had a very poor experience the first time I played it. That's not me dismissing it out of hand. So, I just know so
0: Fix it, man. Your your issue was that you needed better mana sinks. Fix it. I've been too busy
1: casting pull from tomorrow. I'll get to uh-huh, it. I promise.
0: On, I'll, I'll put the polls down. Like I said, I think it's
1: already getting close to the time to put them down. So
0: help, help me out, man. I, I, I did, I did all the legwork. I did a bunch of stuff. I, I think my article has 10 different Mox Amber deck lists in it.
1: Well, you're going to have everyone helping you out after this, this article comes out. Everyone's going to be working oh, on it.
0: I need you, dog. You're my, you're okay. my partner. Okay. You're my boy. I'll
1: join, I'll join Team Mox. That's fine. I think it has potential. I, I'm not a, I'm not a disbeliever in the Mox. I just know it's not there yet, but it could happen for sure.
0: I don't, I don't like that. That's, that's very non-committal. No, it's not. I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying Mox <laughs> will be a
1: player in this meta game. It's just not figured out yet, and we'll do the work and we'll, we'll
0: make it be a player. We'll force it through if we have to. Hell yeah. No, we'll just break it, break it as much as possible. That's all I want to do. Consider it done. Hell yeah, Ovia. What's up? What else? Like, so, so, Heart of Kieran is kind of the thing that's up, and I, I basically hate Heart of Kirin. I've had bad experiences with Heart of Kirin since its inception, and I'm loving it now. Like, the card is super well positioned. There are enough things that crew it reliably, and certainly some of that is helped by like Gideon and Karn.
1: Right. Those cards coming to prominence is a huge part of the equation for sure.
0: Yep. And so where do we go from here? I mean, if if White X, Heart of Kirin, Scrap Heap, Scrouge, or Fatal Push, whatever, is able to beat the blue control decks, the green mid-range decks, what is going to beat up on them? Is it is it mono-red?
1: It could be, yeah. I mean, look, you're talking about playing things like Toolcraft Exemplar again. You know, if someone goes, hmm, now it's the time for Veteran Motorist, and that 3-1 enters the deck... Or you know, if people decide on things like Sram's expertise as the way to kind of win the white-black arms race, all of these things open the door for Chainwhirler to step up, do some damage, take control. And look, we might have already solved it. I mean, I, I'm pretty sold on the idea of fight with fire in mono red dealing with a lot of the fundamental problems that that deck is currently facing. So it could be that the tools are already there for mono red to to step back up. But look, we know certainly at some point in the format mono red will be disrespected and it will win a tournament i promise this is going to happen you can count on it just like there being a mardu vehicles list in every single top eight this is another thing that will always happen at some point there will be a week where mono red is able to shine and that'll again turn the format absolutely on its head and we'll be kind of right back to square one
0: dude i got beat up so bad by mono red today yeah, I, I lost
1: convincingly to it as well. Again, the fight with fire game. I was like, oh, if this deck adopts this, this is kind of a scary place to be in.
0: Yeah. No, I want to be that person. I want to be the, the person that does something weird whenever you play against someone, That per, the, your opponent is just like, oh, like, I'm terrified of this. Mm-hmm. Like You want to be the person that everyone is terrified of.
1: Right, right. And this might be
0: the way to do so. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep hard of curating people. I think people are going to be playing like more and more disenchant and fatal pushes and stuff, but whatever, like that doesn't make the rest of your deck bad, and when that happens, you're just like, all right karn lyra you know
1: right you have you have other avenues for sure
0: yeah i I think I think white black is quite good
1: I've always hypothesized that the printing of Karn will have a dramatic impact on these decks I think that's playing out to some extent. I'm a little surprised the numbers on Karn are are lower. I mean, it just seems like a four of to me. Maybe I'm overstating its importance, but it just enables so many things that the deck wants to do. The games where you have Karn are so fundamentally different from the games where you don't. Um, I guess just in a lot of spots, you would rather have the raw unchecked aggression, but at some point that's going to change and things will gravitate towards the middle and and Karn feels like an eventual four of in most of these lists to me.
0: My rationale behind three Karns is that Karn is... Basically only good if if you have time. So you mm-hmm. need to like stabilize a little bit. And when you start drawing multiple Karns, it makes it even more difficult for you to stabilize because Karn is not doing a great job at that.
1: Well, in some context though, I mean, look, to some extent I'm reshaping the game state to support my argument, and I get that. But you it's not hard to envision game states where like you have a heart on board, but they've answered all your creature and now you're pulling off the top and you draw Karn and you can both crew up heart, attack, crew, use heart on defense and you drew a card that turn and the game changed, you know, like that. So it's not too far fetched to see situations where Karn is enabling a comeback as well. I do get your point. It plays better when you're asserting yourself on the game than on defense. And this is a very specific situation I'm pointing to, but uh, you know, it's not outside the realm of possibility that Karn enables those game plans as well.
0: No, it's not it, like you, you are completely correct about that. And maybe that has something to do with like how you should be building your decks and everything. Like I, I think Gideon and Karn play very well together, especially in combination correct. with Art of Kieran, right? Correct. So maybe that's like kind of the secret is like, you need to play more Gideons to go with your Karns.
1: No, Gideon stock is, is very, very up in my eyes. I think that's a card that deserves more play right now.
0: Yeah. It's it's just good against Heart of Kieran and it pressures Planeswalkers. Like it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I basically never thought I would say that. Getting of the trials, actually, quite good. Times have changed. Qu- crazy world we live in, man.
1: Mm-hmm. Best kind though. It keeps things interesting.
0: Been getting attacked by Galta, It hasn't. It hasn't felt good.
1: <laughs> it never does when a giant dinosaur is rampaging all over you.
0: Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Maybe these green decks need to play struggle to survive, like Splash Red for that.
1: Well, you did see a green deck playing uh cartouche right so they they've made some concessions yeah, to remove.
0: that's that's just gross i don't want to do that
1: what about the what, what i'm forgetting the limited card the fight Na- card. nature's way yeah are we interested in that card potentially
0: not really i don't know they'll figure it out maybe maybe they i mean they, they've been playing like four galtas too a lot of them so maybe that's just it yeah that
1: number has has room to change I- I don't know if I like more Galters or less Galters, to be honest with you. I need to play with this deck more. I played I played with the older, worse version. I need to get some games in with the new version.
0: Yeah, I mean, Monument could also just be a thing that yeah, it could ends, come up, back. ends up being good against Lyra, but eh, who knows? All right, is it time for our question? Because
1: we have a good one. It is time for our question. Uh, this question is going to come to us from friend of the podcast, Emma Handy. Uh, Emma is a patreon and a member of our discord emma also has her own patreon which you could check out you know if you're in the mood for supporting great content creators uh but besides that point she asks is there a way to train oneself to identify cards that are positioned well in a standard metagame things seem obvious when someone does it but it's harder to do it in the abstract uh what do you what's your takeaway for emma's question
0: i mean we we kind of just talked about like how and why part of Kieran is currently well positioned and how that might shift and everything. And I I think that's kind of just doing it, you know, like I I think she might be asking the wrong question where it's like, is there a way to train oneself to identify cards that are well positioned? I, I don't think that you need to be able to figure out like cards that are well positioned. I think you just have to have like a good enough read on the metagame and look at it and see like, what are these things like, what, what are ways that you can exploit these various decks, right? So, again, uh, Blue X Control, Green X Midrange. Like, Blue X Control's removal is very oddly uh, restrictive. So, like, Seal Away, right? It's like Vigilance just ends up being good against Seal Away. Right. And the Green decks are super weak to Flyers, and it's like, okay, I guess, like, Heart of Kieran is a thing. Like, plus we have Karn, and it just, like, it all it all makes sense, Right. But like you can't be like, oh, Heart of Kieran is good, unless you actually look at the decks and identify the decks and their weaknesses. And then you start looking for things that will fill that role. Right. I, I think that it's such a difficult question
1: because I think the answer is so broad as to almost be meaningless. It's like you need to just see everything. And you need to train this ability to perceive a format holistically, and be able to pluck out these threads of commonality across different archetypes. Like that's really the best thing you can do is say – you know, statements like, oh, the fundamental turn in modern is turn four right now. So if I find turn 3.5, I have a leg up on everyone. Like that's an example of the holistic approach to a format and and right. getting to something a little bit broader. And to your point, oh, the most commonly played removal spells are this, this, and this. So creatures with X are virtually unbeatable right now. This is kind of a specific example, but I ended up playing copies of the White Knight in my, si- my control sideboard this weekend. Thought being like in a format where Fatal Push and Verasca's Contempt are the key removal spells and there's a lot of Black X control decks, you can board into something like Knight and basically you can never lose from that point. Now, ultimately that format didn't exist anymore. It kind of got blown out of the water and, and black control was no longer a thing. But that was the thread I was looking for in identifying that card and why I thought it may be well positioned. And I think at the time I was playing it, it was, I had a lot of success boarding in and knights and, and getting three twos and pressuring planeswalkers and dodging removal spells. And I had knights just run the table, um, just do three a turn and end the game very quickly into like an Argul's Bloodfast or something like that. So it worked in some sense, because I was able to identify what I felt would be the most widely played removal spells. I found a card which dodged a lot of them to the same extent. I talked a little bit about, and I'm going to blank on the name of the card. I think it's either geode minor as a card that control decks could potentially play to pressure other control decks in the mirror where they wanted to present an early clock because all of the removal had a very difficult time dealing with either geode minor. You are always going to get in your first attack. And at that point you can blink uh, assuming you, you know, get past that initial cast out Why the trigger's on the stack. So so things like that, where you're able to see these common threads in the widely played removal spells, in the threats, you know, when you can say, oh, this is a Planeswalker format. So it's a very important concept that I get on the board immediately and, are, and I'm able to generate pressure on Planeswalkers because if I don't, my opponents will just sit behind them and run away with the game. All of these broad holistic points contribute to, to finding a well-positioned card in the metagame.
0: Yeah, so <clears throat> one of the cards that has been good for me is Shauna. Mm-hmm. Because she dodges cast out and seal away and a lot of other stuff. And a lot of the matchups are not about necessarily like removing every single creature you play. It's just like they are going to beat you some other way, be it evasion or uh, just going over the top of you or what have you. You know, so it's like if you play a white mirror against a green mirror and you have Ashana on the white side. Like Shauna's going to be very big, and she's going to stay that big unless like Ballista happens to just mow down all of your creatures or something. But right. you know, play things with more than one toughness in a world full of walking Ballista. So then it's like, okay, well, I have the six six or seven seven. Like, what do I do with her? And uh, appeal to authority is like kind of the thing that that came to my mind. Where it's like, you know, she she's already very large, uh, and now here's a way to give her evasion and make her even bigger. You know, and in in the meantime, like if you're able to keep a couple things in play against. The blue-white decks is like, Shauna is very difficult for them to actually deal with. Right. And you, did,
1: you just did exactly what I was speaking about, where you were plucking at threads, right? You were like, oh, this point is good. And this point is good. And you started weaving them into a, what looked like a very cohesive theory for like a white-green aggro deck, which you're now, I, I think you have to consider, is this deck well positioned? You know, it has all these pieces together. I can appeal to authority. I have the huge Shauna's. We talked earlier about Shalai. And, and you can mush all these cards together and have an aggressive slant on white green, which seems to be very well positioned, just by plucking at these little threads and, and grabbing cards which you felt were well positioned.
0: Exactly. And that deck won the PTQ, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, something to that effect.
0: So, yeah, I, I think it's a, a combination of being able to look at the meta game like, what what is actually going to be popular, what categorizes these decks, like what makes them what they are and what makes them good, and then just being able to identify weaknesses. And sometimes it is just like, well, Vigilance is good against white control and Flying is good against green decks and other white decks, and oh, hey, look, there's Heart of Kirin, right? There's, there's not necessarily going to be an obvious answer, especially like a Mythic Rare or whatever. Like sometimes you have to dig a little deeper or sometimes you have to use a combination of cards. So it is just like, be very familiar with the decks and the cards in the format and just kind of always have them in the back of your head. So for me, I have a long box of like playable standard cards and then I have like two long boxes of playable modern cards. And sometimes I'll just be like going through there. And obviously like my my definition of playable is like probably different than someone else's. Mine, mine might be a, a bit more loose, but either way, it's just like, just always make sure that you never forget that like, I don't know, Restoration Specialist is a card, not that like that does anything, but it's just like, you know, that's kind of this obscure card that you might forget exists unless you have it somewhere that you can go back and reference it to like either refresh your memory or, you know, try and get some inspiration.
1: Yeah, I do the exact same thing. I, a lot of times I'll just flip through Magic Online too, but obviously that has a playability issue, but. I have, I think, seven binders of, like, eternal playable cards, so modern and legacy playable cards sorted by color, and I'll just flip through all the black cards in the format and be like, oh, this card's here. Um, And then I have one, like, four-pocket wide binder that I keep all playable standard cards in. And that binder's a little thinner because I usually don't buy standard unless I'm playing it. Like, I'll show up at a tournament and buy the deck. But by the end of a format, it fills out a little bit, and I can often pick some good ideas from there.
0: Word. Yeah, so I... I don't know, maybe just like read articles and see what people are doing. And uh, maybe someone will mention a card that you're just like, oh, that's it. That's the secret, you know? And maybe like you see the appeal to authority to go with the Shauna or whatever. And maybe they're like, oh, well, Shauna would be good, but it has these issues. And then, you know, you can present the other half of it, right? It's like, I don't care where my information comes from. I will take my information from anyone and then parse it how I see fit, you know? But like, I just want to have all the information and as long as I'm well-informed, I can make the best decision for myself.
1: Right, right. And that's why, you know, I'm a big proponent of not rejecting any information. It's all useful. You can can hate the conclusions it comes to, you can disagree and you can say this isn't viable, but still appreciate that information and add it to your memory banks and and see what you can do with it in the future.
0: Absolutely. I, I don't think that applies to RAF though. I think RAF is just something people should not play with.
1: Well, we've already expressed our distance <laughs> for Raph. Hopefully this is going to be the last episode where we never have to mention Raph going forward. I would like this to be the end of the Raph experiment.
0: Oh, uh, just wait until it starts taking over in modern or whatever. Uh, I hope not. I really hope Dude, not. Dude, it, it pitches to Force-A-Will. Stop,
1: stop, stop, stop. Don't, don't give them any ideas.
0: That's game.